Genesis 3. And I'll read it from there then. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the fall has just happened. I don't need to go back over that. We all know the story of the fall. They ate the food that they were told not to eat. And immediately what happened was the first thing out of Adam's was, was they hid. They hid from God. They heard him walking. Instead of running, hi, best friend who just made me and we have such fun together. They heard the, the, the creator who adores them and they hid. That was the first thing that they did. They hid and they were afraid. They're the fate of the one who, who loves them. And, and they realized they were naked. And, and Esther talked about that last week, just the shame of being naked. And um, especially in our culture, that's one of the worst things we can think of. Um, and so that's, that's where it all started. That's where it all kicks off. And what is beautiful is a verse, a few, um, verse 21, a few verses later, is it says that they, they tried to cover themselves. So they just grabbed what was around. Um, traditionally, in a children's Bible, there's fig leaves, but they just grabbed some leaves and they tried to cover their nakedness. And God said, no, that's not, that's not good enough. If we're going to cover your nakedness, I'm going to do it for you. And he made suitable garments for them. And, and that's just a lovely image to start with, is that when we feel naked, when we feel exposed, um, that shame makes us feel, we try and grab what's around us and we try and cover our nakedness so that people can't see our shame, those, those bits that we think are dirty, those bits we think are naked and exposed, those bits that we think will cause rejection and disconnection. And we cover those with whatever's around us. And we're thinking about what some of those things are today and are they actually helping us? Or can God, our Father, cover us? Does he know the best way to deal with our shame? So let's get on to my slides. Um, So shame comes from the enemy. I think we just need to make that really clear to start with. Um, in, in the garden, it was about the devil tricking Adam and Eve and coming in the form of a serpent. And he hasn't stopped doing that. Um, he still tricks us and tries to trick us into blocking our relationship with God. And he does this because, again, in the Genesis story, God says that he made mankind in his own image. So we are all, every single one of us, made in the image of God And the devil wasn't. He was an angel. He was a beautiful worship leader. And he wanted to be like God. He wanted to have what we had. But he couldn't get it because he was a created angel and not a human. And and he got jealous and he fell to the earth. And he's still jealous of us. And he still can't have what we have. that, That opportunity of intimacy with a heavenly father to be like God created in his image. He can't have what we've got. And he's continually trying to trip us up and trick us into being separated from God and separated from each other and separated from all the amazing ways that we were meant to live. And shame is one of the key ways that he does this. And it's, it's so strong and it's so powerful. And it's it's so familiar, we're, we're born with it, we're born into it, we're so used to it, that we don't always recognize it as being something that isn't ourselves. It's, it's so, it feels so real, it feels so true. But shame is, is a thief. 
And it robs us of intimacy and relationships. It robs us of connection with God, as I said. It robs us with, um, it can make us afraid of leaders or teachers or um, peers at work or strangers in, in a shop or on the street. It, it just robs us because we, we feel a need to withdraw and to hide. And it's a liar. It's a liar. It puts lies in our head. It says, you're not good enough. It says, if they see what you're like, they won't like you anymore. So you need to hide. You need to dress like them. You need to laugh at their bad jokes. You need to fit in. Don't be yourself. Try and be the same. You're weird. They won't like you. And shame makes us conform um, to a, to what we think is acceptable to others. And it, it then that loses our identity. And so... But yeah, we feel that we're never good enough to be loved. We all have slightly different lies, but they all come from the same source. Um, we're not going to be, we're never going to be good enough. And what you feed and protect grows. So if you feed and protect a, a, a lie that shame brings you, because shame is a liar, then that's going to grow. And if you feed on that and meditate on that, that's going to become louder and louder in your head. And the same is, works with scripture and with truth. If you meditate on truth, on who God says you are, that grows and becomes loud. But sometimes it's easier to believe the shameful for lies. And Brené Brown, um, who was mentioned last week, if you haven't heard her TED Talk, you absolutely must. I'm, I'm not really a TED Talk kind of person, just because, yeah, I don't move in those circles generally. But she is awesome, and she has um, busted this bubble on, on shame, and it is brilliant. And she talks about this shame triangle. So I remember, do you remember at school or at Brownies? Scouts, you learn about the, the, the fire triangle, and you need um, heat fuel and oxygen and that creates a fire and if you remove one of those things the fire goes out so a good example is pouring on water you move the heat and the oxygen so she says there's a shame triangle and again I need teaching how to do powerpoints I tried really hard but I don't know how you draw lines and put them in bubbles and things so help me help me but that's a triangle okay the shame triangle so it needs secrecy silence and judgment and you remove one of those things and you burst shame you can remove shame. So secrecy, we hide. We hide our fears. We hide our thoughts. Um, silence, we don't speak about. And judgment, we can judge ourselves and we can accept the judgment of others or we can judge others and put shame on them. But when we remove those things, shame, shame disintegrates because it's not true. It's not made of, of a substance that lasts like the love of God. It turns to dust. It can turn to dust. And so the opposite of these three things is vulnerability, sharing, and empathy. So when we start to... Um, we've been talking a lot about that this, this year, about vulnerability, about this is the season of relationships. You know, in COVID, we've learned to, to hide, to be alone, and it takes a lot of courage to come out of that. And it's still taking courage to come out of that. It's taking courage to join back into relationships. Our kids at school, but even us as adults, where um, time has moved on, relationships have moved on, and we might feel we've got a bit lost and a bit stuck and a bit left behind. And it takes vulnerability to say, I'm, I'm feeling lonely, or um, I'm feeling left out, or please come for a walk with me, please come for a coffee. It takes courage to do those things because we're worried we'll be rejected. But these are the ways to to relationship and these are the ways that removes 
the shame. And Bernie Brown says, vulnerability is also the birthplace of joy, creativity, belonging, and love. Which was just a nice little quote I wanted to throw in. So to understand this a bit more, I want to say that there's, there's a few systems of truth that we live under. And there's four systems of truth that affect what we believe and make up what we believe. And they are ours, others, Satan's, and God's. So our truth, so what we have learned as we grow up, what we've studied, what we've experienced, what has been said, um, what we've meditated on, what we've heard from God, we put it all together and we form our truth. And so our thoughts can come from ourself and they can be right, they can be wrong. And our truth is also formed by what others say, what they they do, what we see people doing um, in the world, but also what's been said to us, what's been said to us by our parents at school. And a lot of shame comes from those roots of you're not good enough, we don't want you. Um, a lot of shame can come from what's been said to us. And again, these things can be true and they can be false. So, um, And the enemy can twist them in, into lies. So they, people can be right in their judgments about us and they can be wrong in their judgments about us. And even if, as I'm saying that, it still it feels quite painful, quite negative. They can be right in their positive judgments and they can be wrong in their positive judgments. They can be right in their negative judgments and wrong in their negative judgments. But we take a lot of that and we take some of that as truth and that forms part of our truth. The other way our truth is formed is by Satan. So he, he speaks to us as well. And as I said, he wants to interrupt our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So he does that through shame and through lies. And we believe a lot of lies. Um, some people have been Christians a while. I love praying with people. I love being prayed for because I've had a lot of this stuff that I've had to deal with. Um, and when a, a lie of the enemy is exposed, it's amazing. Like, oh my goodness, you suddenly see God's truth on it. You think, I believe in that all my life. I just thought that was normal. And someone says, no, that's not normal. And God says, that's not normal. That's a lie of the enemy. And as soon as the lie is exposed, it's really easy to sieve off. Um, I grew up on a um, in the 70s, as I said, and we were a London family. And when I was six, we moved to a small holding in Wales. Um, if you were kind of hippie-ish from London at that time, you went to Morocco or Pembrokeshire. We went to, well, borders of Carmarthenshire, Pembrokeshire, to be exact. And we bought a small holding, and we were in our self-sufficiency, and um, we made butter and cheese, and we had to milk the cows by hand. Um, that was quite hard. They'd kick over the stool and step on your foot. But anyway, let's not get distracted. So you'd leave the milk to stand in the warm, in the kitchen, and the fat would rise to the top. The cream would separate from the milk. You'd skim off the cream, and then you'd beat that for hours and hours and hours to make your butter. So when um, stuff rises to the surface, my point is you can skim it off. And it's much easier to separate cream from milk when it's in two different places. So like the Bible talks about a furnace for silver. So you smelt, you raise the heat, you make silver liquid and the impurities, the bits of dirt rise to the top and you can scoop them off. Now in our society, we're taught that to show emotion... To show you upset is bad. We must hide it. So when we feel our emotions rising up naturally as British people, we push them down. Like, I'm so sorry. I'll pull myself together. All right, I'm ready now. And when emotions are rising up, God is saying, right, I'm ready to skim that off. I'm removing that. It's like a splinter popping out. Why would you push a splinter back down? Pull it out. And so often God wants to bring us freedom, but we push those emotions down instead of letting him skim them off. When they're exposed, it means he knows we're ready to deal with it. We're strong enough, and this is often the moment. 
Right. So the systems of truth are really, really important. Um, and that the Bible says, um, in, when it talks about the gifts of the Spirit, one of the brilliant gifts of the Spirit is the discernment of spirits. And it says to eagerly desire these spiritual gifts. So that is one we can eagerly desire. And what it means is to know where our thoughts are coming from. Which of the spirit are we listening to? Are we listening to ourselves? Are we listening to the enemy? Are we listening to God? And it's really good idea. And if you want it, even right now, if you want that, put your hand on your head and say, God, give me the discernment of spirits. Give me discernment of spirits. And I do this sometimes in the morning or when I'm having a quiet time. God, give me discernment of spirits. Bless my mind. Bless my spirit to discern what is going on in my head. You know, is this my thought? Is this the enemy's thought? Have I picked this up from someone else? Or is this your truth, God? And it makes a massive difference to how we experience shame. Right, sticking to the slides. Okay. So, a really, a really good um, biblical example of how this, this works is um, the woman at the well, of how God deals with shame. Because shame is really heavy and it's big, isn't it? And it's really, it's really oppressive and it's really dark. Um, but the woman at the well is an incredible story. Now, I just want to... Um, I had a vision about this, and I don't often have visions, but I'm prophetic, and I, I'm just pushing into God and trying to get him to show me stuff in, in the spirit. How do you see stuff, God? And when I say a vision, I don't mean like a, I was taken up to heaven and I saw this huge screen. It wasn't like that. It's, I mean that in, in my mind, you know, when you get a thought, like right now, think of a, a, a train. Everyone can think of a train in their head, right? And so... It's like, okay, think of the woman at the well. You can picture this scene. But I wasn't really thinking about that. And God interrupted me. And I was just, it was just, I saw it in the same way, like when I say think of a train, you see a train. So I suddenly had a thought of Jesus. I could see Jesus in my mind sitting on a well. I was like, oh, it's Jesus. He's sitting on a well. Random. And then I saw a woman coming up over the hill. I was like, oh, who's that? And she saw Jesus. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> He's sitting on a well. Um, she's walking up a hill. Um, there's a lot of women in the room. It's, it's sometimes threatening when you're a woman alone with a guy in a, in a dodgy situation. If you're walking down an alley at night, is an obvious one. You hear footsteps behind you. It's scary. Okay? Um, in this culture, you don't meet alone a woman and a man. It's, it's, it's dodgy. It's dangerous. Um, and it's just, you will get shame put on you just for doing that because either it's, it's a bad guy or you're a bad woman, something's going to happen. It's not a good situation. So you can, I could see her coming up this hill and seeing he's sitting on the well. And I knew it was this story. And I thought, like in this text, we'll read it in a minute, but it says Jesus was sitting by a well. And I was like, no, he was sitting on the well. And that makes such a difference because it's really confrontational. And Jesus never does anything by accident. He purposely sat on that well, knowing she was coming to cause a confrontation. I mean, he knew this was inappropriate and scary. But he sat there so that she would have to deal with this situation. And and actually, I, I um, type this out quickly because I don't get PowerPoint. But I, um, when I read it in a different translation, it did say Jesus was sitting on the well. And I was like, yes, that is brilliant. So when I saw this playing out in my mind, she was coming up the hill and she sees him and there's a moment of, oh no. And then she gets really cross. 
And I, I like this bit because she's like, what are you doing? This is not okay. You should not be there. You need to move out of the way. This is not acceptable. And she can see that she's a Samaritan woman and she can see that he's a Jew, probably a holy man, maybe a rabbi type, and he should know better. So if he's doing this, there's something really odd going on. So she's getting quite defensive and she's getting feisty and she's getting ready for a fight because he is deliberately being confrontational. Um, and then they had this beautiful dialogue, which we'll go into. Um, so I will start reading now. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, maybe, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by or on the well. And it was about noon. So noon is the hottest time of the day. So um, this woman, all the women came in the morning. We've maybe heard the story before. In the cool of the, the cool of the morning, on the evening when it was late, and they came in a group. It was a really sociable time. This woman is coming at the hottest time of the day on her own. Something is wrong. So she is not socially allowed to 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 be with these women, and she has to try and hide from them and come on her own, even though it causes her a lot of problems. So a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Will you give me a drink?" So imagine him sitting on the well. She's coming up. Um, what are you doing here? He asked for a drink. But even to get, to get a drink, she's got to dip down in the well right next to him. That's not comfortable either. She said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now imagine this bit. This is feisty. She's not saying, oh, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. She's going, this is not okay. What are you doing? You can't do this. You're breaking every cultural law at the moment. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank of himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So um, sorry, if we could just jump back <laughs> to that one. So he, he goes straight in with a spit. He's not messing it. He goes straight into what he came for. He's like, no, you need living water. I've seen that you need it. I'm going to get the shame off you and we're going to get you to a good place straight away and quickly. And again, she's getting fired. She's going, are you, do you, who do you think you are? She's saying, do you think you're greater than Jacob who built this well? Who do you think you are suggesting you can do that? Um, okay, thanks, Hannah. Next, next one. And then he says, everyone who drinks in this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Instantly, instantly she changes from a feisty um, outcast to like, I need that, I need that. Straight away, the woman with some of the most shame that, that is around, straight away she's like, I need what you've got, Jesus. I need that. She doesn't even understand yet, but she hears Jesus' voice. She hears what he is saying to her directly. And whatever else anyone has said is instantly vanishing. She said, give me this water so I won't get thirsty again. She still doesn't get it and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Instantly he's been confrontational. Because he knows she hasn't got a husband. As she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say I have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. In any culture, five five husbands is a lot. But in that culture, it's very unusual. 
um, which is why she was on her own and she was shamed. So she's been through some really difficult times and she's been ostracized by society. Um, even if they were perfectly legit, lovely reasons why she had five husbands, that's still quite traumatic. She must have been through an awful lot of trauma to have got through that. But possibly there was a lot of, um, well, trauma. There was a lot of really maybe abuse, maybe really difficult situations for her to have gone through that experience. Um, and Jesus is lovely. He says, what you've said is quite true. And he's affirming. He says, I, I understand you. And I appreciate that you're telling me the truth. And she comes straight out with the truth. She's not lying anymore. She's not hiding anymore. She just can only speak the truth to Jesus. And he, he affirms her for that. And so he gets to the point. He gets to the shame instantly. And he brings it straight out into the open. Remember that splinter, that vulnerability. He's like, I'm going after this. This is your shame, and I'm bringing it out straight away. He's not hiding it. He goes straight for it. And she's like, yep, yep, I can see you're a prophet. And then she's still a bit unsure. She's still a bit feisty. You claim the place we must go to worship is Jerusalem. Why can't we worship on this mountain? Um, So she's still going, yeah, okay, I like what you're saying, but what about this? And what about that? And it's okay to question God. It's okay to question, yeah, okay, you want to heal me, but I'm struggling with this. What about that thing that happened to me? What about this, God? You've said this. I don't get it. You're still blaming and shaming me. And he's like, no, I'm not. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming um, when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. That is stunning. That is the first time Jesus has admitted he is the Messiah. And who does he do it to? He finds the woman with the most shame that he can find, who is ostracized, isolated, and hiding. And he says, I see your shame. I'm going to give you something better instead of it. I'm going to give you my living water. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And you're going to be the first person. And it's going to be recorded for everyone to know that you're the first person I told my secret to, that I am the Messiah. And that is how God responds to us in our shame. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't say, oh, look at you. Keep away. He's like, right, I'm going after that and we're getting it out right now because that's not yours and that's not okay for my child to be living like that. I'm not happy as a father God that my child is living with those burdens. I'm not happy that you're isolated. I'm not happy that you think you have to do a certain religious laws to find me. You can worship in spirit and truth right now and I can set you free Instantly, this, this transaction took minutes, minutes to deal with some of her worst problems of years and years of trauma. And then verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Not only was she transformed, but her relationships were restored. She was ostracized and alone and she runs back and the whole town listened to her. Not only did they listen to her, they dropped their old ways. They become born again or whatever the version was in those days. And the whole town transforms. So they listen to her. They pay her attention and she's back in society. And not only that, but the whole town is blessed because of her. And that's what Jesus does with our shame. He deals with it quickly, beautifully. He gives us something so much better and he reunites us with others and then we can be the blessing that we're always meant to be. Right.
So where do we go from there? You know, there's lots more examples of stories like that, like Zacchaeus and the thief on the cross. And, 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 and we don't know her story fully, but we know the thief on the cross, he says, I am worthy of death. He says to the other guy on the cross, you know, stop, stop saying that stuff. We are worthy. We do deserve to die. And he says, we have done the bad stuff. And yet Jesus forgives him instantly and he's straight into heaven. And he couldn't earn his salvation. He couldn't get on the, the, the rotor at church. He couldn't prove his worth as a good Christian. He couldn't bring anyone else um, to, 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 to Jesus. But, but God rescued him, even in his, um, what he would say in, in his sin when he was doing the bad stuff. God still pulled him out into his kingdom. And it, it's just saying that because as Christians, so often, and I have to keep checking myself, that we think, oh, we have to be good enough to come to God. We can only come to him when we're good enough, when we're ready. Um, he's only interested when we're doing all the right stuff. We've read our Bible, we've prayed, we've been to church, we've done blah, 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 tick. Right now I can come and have a proper quiet time and meet with Jesus. And there's so many examples in the Bible of really broken people and God goes straight to them. Jesus goes straight to them and he absolutely loves them and he just pulls out that splinter. He pulls out that shame and he says, come on, be who you were meant to be. I know what you've been through, but let's move on together. So yeah, it's already done. He's already done it. There's, there's, we don't need to hide from this because Jesus died on the cross a long time ago and there's nothing we can do to change that because it's already happened and that transaction has already taken place. And if you know him as your Lord and Savior, if you've um, been born again, become a Christian, however you want to phrase it, that he's done that for you, that transaction's happened. And again, Romans 8, like Esther mentioned last week, is brilliant. Um, and he, it says again and again in every sort of different angle so that we can all comprehend it. You have moved from darkness into light. You're no longer living under Satan's ideas and kingdom. You're living under my ideas and kingdom. And he says it again and again, you're not here. And the enemy says, no, you're bad. You're dark. You're living under, under my oppression. You're living in shadows. And Jesus is like, no, when I died on the cross, I broke that and I put you into the light. You are light. You are righteous and holy. And we're like, no, I mess up all the time. He goes, yeah, I know. But my righteousness is on you. My holiness is on you. You don't have to be good enough. It doesn't matter how much you mess up. We are children of God. And the enemy just tries to put us, live in the shadows, stay in the darkness. You're bad. And when we look at the Bible, the whole story is right from Genesis, you know, all the way through the Israelites in the desert, all the wars and kings and Everyone messed up. Every single person. None of them were good enough. They did terrible things. And the whole Bible is, yeah, you mess up. I love you. I'm going to restore you. You're brilliant. You're mine. Yeah, you messed up. I love you. I'm going to restore you. You're brilliant. You're mine. And it happens again and again. And that is, that is the gospel. So we aren't disqualified because God knows our nature. He knows we mess up. And that's why he came to rescue us. We need to stop trying to be good enough and just accept and let him love us and remove the shame. We don't have to live under the enemy's shadows, under his truth. We need to find God's truth, who he says we are, and try and live from that place. So coming into the end. So I just put up a list of um, how to start the question with God, because 
Um, we need to recognize the, the enemy's lies. And that can be hard to do because we've got all these different thoughts in our heads blending in. And to find the source, so where is it coming from? It's good to sit down with God and say, God, if, if there's a thought that you keep having, it's a good place to start. Like, um, I'll never be accepted. I'll never be good enough. Um, go after that thought. God, is, is this true? Um, where's it come from? Is it from the enemy? Is it from someone said it when I was a child? Is it, is it my thought? Is it true? Is it not true? And then what do you think about me? Um, is, is a brilliant one. And that's hard. That's vulnerable again. We're getting back to that place of vulnerability. God, what do you think about me? And he can't resist that question. And we might have to practice listening, but he's very good at speaking. And he's very good. Uh, and you can put on a worship song or, or find verses in the Bible. And, and that can get you sort of springboarded into listening to his voice. Um, and you might need to then, when you get a lie exposed, you might need to um, move through the process of forgiveness or um, repentance. Because sometimes, God, I'm sorry I believe what the enemy said about me and I've been meditating on that. Why haven't I believed in what you say about me? Now I know I'm sorry I believe those lies. And um, I forgive the person who said them or please forgive me for believing something so stupid um, and let me know who you are. So we move out of the um, out of the lie through forgiveness, um, out of the judgment and condemnation, and we move into God's truth. We look at the Bible, look at some of those people, um, go through Romans 8, which bit are we getting stuck in? Ask a good friend. Sometimes it takes vulnerability to get to that place. Um, and think, what steps can I take to to build towards vulnerability, what does that look like? And when I say vulnerability, I mean, um, I don't mean get into an unsafe situation. I don't mean that. I mean like emotional vulnerability that can build a relationship um, and get you to freedom. I said things like, shall we go for coffee? Could we meet and pray? That sort of vulnerability. Because if we don't do that, we're going to stay isolated. Um, and, and God, once you get into the flow of this, God really is good at helping... Um, helping you find things that you can, um, that use that like little checklists in your head that, oh, that's a shameful thought. And just to learn to measure your thoughts and work out where stuff's coming from. Spiritual warfare is brilliant. Proclaim scripture, find the verses that work for you and have them ready. So you're an idiot. Oh gosh, no. What does the Bible say? And then proclaim that verse and, and start to recognize those thoughts and stop repeating them in your head. And I just put this last bit at the bottom. When it, someone cries, everyone else breathes a sigh of relief and feels safe. What I mean, is sometimes I've, I've run groups or had people around and we've worshipped or gone through some prophecy stuff. And, and, and usually when you come to God and stop hiding, he starts to expose something. And um, that can often express itself as tears. That can happen in church. That can happen outside of church. And, and usually, as I said, as British, we try and push that down. But when, when someone starts to do that, it actually brings such um, freedom in the room because when someone starts that vulnerability process, everyone else just goes, oh, phew, it's okay now. And what happens is that person, is, every time I've seen it, gets loved and ministered to and gets free. But also everyone else that knows, oh, I don't have to hide anymore. I'm with the kind of people that I can just be myself. 
I can say anything in, in, with these people because look how they've handled that person crying. Look how that person felt to be vulnerable. I can do that too. And it shifts the atmosphere in the room. And it shifts the amount of freedom people can get. And the relationship, and whenever that's happened, even if people haven't known each other well, suddenly there's this really close bond. Um, and you can know people for years and not feel close. But as soon as someone shows some vulnerability of emotion, you know you're safe. And, and the bond can grow. So back to Brené's vulnerability. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful way that you love us. You see our mess and shame and you just want to give us a big hug. So right now, Lord, we give you our filthy rags. And we just say, I don't want to live like this anymore, God. I don't want to live under shame. I don't want to live the way the enemy tells me to. I want to live in your love, God. You say you give me robes of righteousness. Well, will you give them now, Lord? Will you take my rags? And right now, Lord, I receive your clean robe that you give me. I know I did nothing to deserve it. I know it's what you did on the cross. But I don't want to live in the shadows anymore, Lord. I receive your love. Teach me how to know what it's like, Lord, to be loved by you. To accept that I am who you say I am. So, Lord, as we worship, will you continue that process, God, of transforming us, of taking us out of the shadows and leading us into your light? Teach us how to do that, God. Take us closer, take us deeper. Show us when we need to weep, when we need to repent, when we need to forgive. And when we need to stand up and shout and proclaim our identity and shout it in the face of the enemy, when we need to eat from that table in the presence of our enemies, Lord. We welcome you, Jesus. So we welcome the worship band back up now.